For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. A controversial school voucher bill advanced in the state Senate this week, even though its future in the House appears non-existent. Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat's Oklahoma Empowerment Act allowing parents to spend taxpayer dollars on private or homeschooling passed the Senate Education Committee. But last week, House Speaker Charles McCall said it wouldn't be heard in his chamber. Neva, why is McCall opposed to Treat's bill? Well, I think he made it clear. Uh, he said that basically there was no, uh, that this was not a priority of the, of the House Republicans. Uh, this was not on their, you know, not on the front burner. And I think he made it pretty clear. In fact, his statement was, you know, I don't plan on hearing this bill this year and uh, that he had communicated that. And when he said that to the press association last week, uh, I think most people viewed that as he had communicated it both to Senate leadership as well as probably the governor. So, but this, I mean, it was interesting and fascinating in, in the committee hearing this week because it was two hours of very, uh, very uh, rapid fire questions and answers back and forth. Um, and uh, it took everyone, including uh, it, bringing in um, uh, senators to get uh, to get the votes to actually get it passed out of committee. And now it goes to the uh, Appropriations Committee in the Senate. So it, it continues to have, you know, kind of a, a an uphill climb in many people's view, um, even getting it out of the Senate with it basically being DOA on the House side. I mean, there'll have to be some real uh, some real changes to really see this be um, something that can move forward this session. And, you know, as we remember, the governor and his state of the state, this was kind of a centerpiece of uh, of his legislative agenda. So uh, there's a lot of political dynamics. And you have then the backdrop from the political campaign side of this give and take between the governor and, and ostensibly his uh, presumed Democratic nominee challenger in the state superintendent, Joy Hoffmeister. And it's basically the clash of, uh, of words on uh, education savings account, ESAs, or vouchers. And, you know, vouchers is, is a very toxic term, particularly when you get in rural um, school districts who, uh, you know, have a real aversion to this whole to this whole conversation. So it will be interesting to see. But you, when you look at the bill itself, I thought it was interesting that um, that treat was very uh, very emphatic several times about making the statement that I'm open to negotiations. If you want to, if you've got ideas, if you want to uh, 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 bring them to the table, I have an open door. Let's discuss it. So he's clearly trying to keep this uh, conversation alive, not only on the Senate side, but hopefully try to open some doors on the House side as well. Ryan. Well, I, you know, Michael, you said uh, its future is uncertain in the House. I think its future is uncertain in the Senate. Uh, this is a double assigned bill, uh, meaning it had to make it through this committee earlier this week. And as Neva said, if the ex officio members, uh, you know, Senate President Pro Temp being one of them and then bringing in the floor leader uh, to cast a vote that put it over the top, it would have failed. And it would have failed with uh, Republicans and uh, Dem uh, Republicans and Democrats joining forces to beat this bill. Uh, so you have education advocates like Senator Kerry Hicks, who did a, uh, a wonderful job along with uh, her colleagues, uh, Senator J.J. Dossett and Senator Joanna Dossett, uh, but also joined with Republicans you know, talking about their concerns of what this would do for rural Oklahoma and also Republicans expressing concern that 
happened. Just last year, uh, the legislature passed and the governor signed a bill that allowed for uh, for open transfer uh, within uh, and, and among school districts. And that was supposed to be this this you know a panacea of school choice that we're going to give parents and students more opportunities and options uh, to find the best educational environment for their students. So just on the heels of that, we have Senator Treat's big new proposal. Uh, as Neva said, this was the centerpiece of Governor Stitt's State of the State address. So to me, the, the surprising thing in this isn't that there's controversy, because I think any time you talk about uh, vouchers or removing money from public schools and then putting them into a private school setting, that's always going to create an issue at the state capitol. Um, the interesting part is that kind of the announcement from the speaker uh, in the first week of session that he was taking this hostage, this this uh, this political hostage in the first week of session, one of the few policy, actual policy priorities that the governor outlined, and then the pro temps policy priority. Um, and now the, I think the pro temps going to have a hard time even getting it out of the, the Senate now, uh, let alone getting it over to the to the House. That all being said, we're talking about Greg Treat who just got reelected to his third term as president pro temp. He's going to be one of the longest serving at this point pro temps in the state legislature. That's not an easy thing to accomplish. He's a, he's a very skilled political operator. Um, and it's a very long session. And so at some point, I imagine Speaker McCall is going to need something that Senator Treat uh, is going to be able to give or that the governor is going to be able to give. And so negotiation is going to be the name of the game. Uh, this, this is going to be something I, I imagine we'll be talking about <clears throat> well into May. Other bills are moving their way through the state capitol as we are in the second week of the legislative session. Are, are there any bills you are specifically keeping an eye on? Ryan, let's start with you. You know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm definitely keeping an eye on the over 100 bills uh, that were filed dealing with Oklahoma's medical marijuana program. Um, there, there is a, a real, uh, which is a huge number of bills. I mean, it, you know, just to give folks some perspective, uh, Medical marijuana legislation isn't anything new in this building. Ever since voters approved State Question 788 back in twenty in June of 2018, uh, we've seen the legislature respond uh, and try to build up uh, a responsible regulatory regime around medical marijuana in Oklahoma. Um, and then, uh, but those have usually been just in a you know three or four big bills that have a whole bunch of concepts plugged into one bill. These big omnibus bills. Um, this year, we don't see that. We see, like I said, over a hundred plus bills. And that doesn't even carry the 40 or so bills that carried over from last legislative session. You know, I think the, the big theme there is that lawmakers you know, are hearing from their constituents that they want to get uh, medical marijuana under control uh, to deal with some of the challenges the communities are facing, but also to see some of the opportunities. And so you know, I think you know, lawmakers, uh, I'm encouraging lawmakers as I'm visiting with them to you know, make sure that whatever we're doing, we're lifting up as a state, we're lifting up the the compliant-minded businesses, those are the folks that are dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's twice uh, to, to follow all the rules. Um, and we don't punish them or make them less competitive to non-compliant actors of the illicit market in any of these reforms that we're seeing. Um, I do think that these 100-plus bills are really contingent on what happens on February 24th. That's a hearing where Metric, the state's seed-to-sale uh, inventory provider, the, the, the most important regulatory tool that Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority has, and full disclosure, I represent Metric as a lobbyist, but also the Oklahoma State Department of Health and OMA uh, will uh, have a chance to dismiss a temporary restraining order that's been in place for almost a year now uh, and has, has really tied the hands of regulators in Oklahoma to be able to go out and enforce the laws that are currently on the books. So 
Whatever happens at that February 24th hearing, I think, is going to have a, an enormous impact on uh, these 100-plus bills that are pending in front of the legislature dealing with cannabis. Neva. Well, and just to kind of to follow up on one point about the number of bills that Ryan's talking about, I think there seems to be my sense is that cracking down on the illegal grow operations is one of the real priorities that I hear from. I hear from a lot of the lawmakers. I mean, so there is there is an interest in, you know, and taking uh, taking some action, doing some things. I mean, obviously reforms. I mean, given how many bills and how comprehensive the conversation is. This will go, I'm sure, all through session, as Ryan probably would agree. But looking at the at the action taken in some of the committees this week, I mean, we saw, you know, we saw a 12-0 vote on another bill by uh, uh, Senator uh, uh, Greg Treat that was to uh, reduce the uh, state sales tax on groceries. I mean, so this one seems to be moving along. It would it would eliminate uh, the state sales tax, but it would let uh, cities and counties continue to uh, to tax groceries. So this is a this is a, a an issue that I think has a lot of um, has a lot of traction. Uh, obviously, there is a financial side, and the good the the good thing about a lot of the discussions about eliminating some of these taxes this session is the fact that uh, the state, as we've talked about many times, is flush with money. I mean, they're in a good financial position, a good budgetary position to be able to have these discussions. So there'll be a lot of devil in the details on this grocery tax bill because the definition of groceries is one of the things that came up in the committee. The fact that, um, you know, how are they going to deal with prepared foods? If you have prepared foods in a grocery store and next door, you have a, uh, a small business that provides the same things. Can you tax one and not tax the other? So so there's some complexity to these things that that's where the lawmakers really have to dig in, uh, dig in and, and kind of get into the details. The other thing is uh, we've we've seen uh, a bill uh, that uh, basically eliminates the um, uh, eliminates other taxes such as the the one on vehicles that 1.25 percent uh, uh, sales tax on vehicles they brought that in back in 2018 as we remember bad budgetary year needing the money so uh, they they did that and the understanding at the time was it would be temporary and so now uh, Senator Kim David's uh, bill would in fact uh, uh, would in fact make that go away so there's a there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of bills like that uh, there's even a bill on making a flat income tax rate uh, that uh, is being that's moving through the house this week starting through the committee process and and what it says basically if it were left intact was in 10 years uh, we basically would have the state income tax at zero so um, many people have advocated a long time to make make ourselves more attractive and competitive with states like Texas and other surrounding states, that this is something that we need to move toward. Uh, obviously, it's a huge budget uh, consideration. And so I think that'll be a lively discussion. And I think the other thing that was significant that came out of the House Budget and Appropriations Committee this week was uh, the fact that the bill that voted to exempt all military uh, retirement pensions from the state income tax uh, pass through. And I think that, again, is another one that not just because it's a po- political season and people are up for re-election, but because this has been an ongoing conversation for a number of sessions. And it's always been uh, the fiscal impact that's uh, seemed to uh, uh, kind of bring it to a screeching halt. So I think this is one that uh, we're going to see a lot of a lot of interest on both sides, House and Senate. 
Governor Stitt appointed a former employee to a vacant seat on the State Board of Education. Pending Senate approval, Sarah Leepak of Claremore will serve the remainder of Bill Flanagan's term after his retirement. Leepak worked as an attorney for Gateway Mortgage Company, which was founded and run by Stitt until 2018. She is also the daughter of Republican Representative Mark Leepak. Neva, do you think this will cause issues in her confirmation process? I don't know that it will. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to note that it is the outgoing um, Bill Flanagan, who is the one who recommended uh, who recommended her for uh, the remainder of his uh, un- remainder of his term. He's someone that, um, you know, made the point that he knew her well. Uh, he views her as someone that's an except in his words, I think an exceptional person with exceptional abilities. So I think the fact that, uh, that that's in the mix takes away from some of the kind of political dimension that some folks would try to uh, uh, attack on and making the, making the connection with the fact that she had been a, an assistant legal counsel for five Five years at Gateway Mortgage uh, when the governor was uh, uh, in in the private sector before he before he ran or was elected. So I I think uh, the fact that her dad is a, a a state house member. I mean there there are there are a lot of dimensions to this. But she also if uh, if people remember, I mean uh, the ones that kind of are the close observers. She was one of seven applicants back. Um, um, a, a few years ago that applied for the uh, Supreme Court seat. Uh, I think it was back in 2019. At the time, she was the only applicant, I think, out of seven that wasn't a sitting judge. Didn't make that. Uh, did, obviously, wasn't uh, appointed by the governor to the to the court. But we'll, we'll see. I mean, as with most appointments, unless there's something extraordinary in the mix, uh, um, usually the senator who moves that nomination uh, uh, is able to move that through the process and not uh, not have that particular uh, appointee taken hostage. We'll see, given the fact that it is for the State Board of Ed, uh, it may set up for a little more interesting uh, uh, skirmish. But uh, at the end of the day, I think most insiders would uh, perceive that she would be on a track to be uh, uh, to be no- nominated and confirmed. Ryan. Well, I, I think that she'll likely be nominated and confirmed. I don't think anybody's surprised that the governor selected somebody uh, that will likely carry his water on that board. Um, you know, the, the governor's made it very clear uh, in in using these new powers that he sought early after being elected and expanding the scope of the executive branch's ability to appoint and essentially control these boards, um, that whoever the governor wants on that board better be singing the same song as the governor, because if they're not, they're not going to be on the board very long. And it's not, this isn't just with the state board of education. I mean, we've seen this kind of across the board with governor Stitt that he, he has a, a, you know, he really wants discipline uh, among the folks that are going out and uh, that he's appointing to these boards and commissions. I don't think that that's, that's a big surprise at all. Uh, And that, I certainly don't think that there's anything uh, there that's going to you know, throw a roadblock in, into her confirmation. Uh, I also don't think it throws a roadblock into her confirmation that you know she, uh, her dad's a, a state representative, or that her mom's on the judicial nominating commission. I don't think that those things hurt. Um, the thing that I think that if that she's going to face the most questions on uh, from Republicans and Democrats is what's her experience in education. You know, what's what's her background in education, um, and you know, you know, even going beyond this particular appointment. How is it that the governor, uh, whenever you, you live in a state with uh, thousands and thousands 
of qualified, uh, active or retired educators uh, that have deep experience in, uh, in, in, in school management, performance, pedagogical uh, uh, development. And, you know, you, you can't find a single teacher or former teacher or school administrator to come in and take this position. To me, I think that that's the bigger question. I think that's the question that lawmakers are going to have. Um, you know, and, and, unfortunate, and unfortunately for, for LePac, it's, you know, she's not, you know, it's not her fault that she doesn't have this. The governor selected her to do that. So, but she is going to be the one, I think, having to answer these questions to, uh, to senators whenever they're doing a confirmation hearing as to, you know, why you uh, when there's so many other people and teachers and educators that, that you know, likely would uh, still carry the governor's water, but bring a, a perspective of having worked in education and worked with students in the past. A political action committee opposed to the re-election of Governor Stitt ran a 30-second ad in Sunday night's Super Bowl. The commercial took aim at the governor's call to make Oklahoma a top 10 state, pointing out where the state has fallen short in education and public safety. Ryan, how effective do you think this ad is? Well, you know, these, these ads don't win or lose elections. Um, I think more than anything else, it was an introduction to Oklahoma voters of, of what they can expect to see walking into this primary season in this general election. Uh, you know, this group is a uh, nonprofit. You know, their, their donors don't have to be disclosed. Um, and so, you know, I anticipate that this will not be the only independent expenditure uh, campaign that's out running negative ads against the governor. And we, we've already seen some of that popping up on, on Fox News with, with another group spending even more than this ad cost uh, on the Super Bowl. Um, you know, so my sense is that it's not so much, boy, they, they run this ad and then they're done, uh, and they, they hope that they've, they've beaten Governor Stitt, because I, you know, the folks doing this are smarter than that. They understand that that's not the game. I would suspect that this is really introducing Oklahomans to the concept that this governor is not going to get a free pass uh, this election cycle and introducing Oklahomans to uh, the, uh, the group that ran this ad. Um, you know, so if you're in Oklahoma and you want to donate uh, unlimited money, you know, this is the kind of production that you can see out of that. So it's, it's almost uh, as much an introduction to, to voters as, an, as, a, as a, uh, an introduction to prospective funders that would want to spend money in a way that um, is, you know, they see as, as more effective or additionally effective than if you just donated the maximum to, to Joy Hoffmeister or any of the other folks that may eventually join the mix uh, running against Governor Stitt. So this is, uh, and you know, we haven't even begun to see uh, what everybody anticipates will be millions of dollars uh, spent by Oklahoma tribes uh, that are going to be targeting Governor Stitt. Whether those happen in the primary or the general or both, remains to be seen but uh you know for oklahomans you'll buckle your seatbelts because this is going to be a very active and spirited campaign season uh that we we really haven't seen before uh for for governor i mean we've we've seen high profile gubernatorial campaigns that have spent a lot of money themselves some independent expenditures but this is going to be this is going to be a, a new level for oklahomans i i would uh i anticipate in this 2022 election cycle neva well, I mean, first of all, I mean, the Oklahoma Project, when it formed late last year, um, it it is a it's been a political action committee that's been out there, actually. I mean, they've they've had an ad blitz going on with commercials and really uh, targeted digital ads, uh, very critical of the governor. I mean, they, they by their own by their own admission, uh, 
say they are a group, a, a group that has been formed to uh, basically committed to holding the governor accountable for his failures in, her, in their words. And so I think this uh, teeing up this uh, Super Bowl ad, uh, having it uh, run inside the Super Bowl, even though extremely expensive, not at the level of national advertising and what the, you know, what those folks paid for a, for a 30 second uh, spot. I think what it did was probably what they hoped it would do. And that is uh, give them a lot of free attention, give them a lot of uh, uh, a lot of media conversation, a lot of folks kind of, uh, you know, starting to take notice that maybe hadn't paid much attention uh, to this point. And I think Ryan is right. I mean, as as we know, the political season is here uh, and it will be a very spirited, very aggressive uh uh, campaign uh, at on on all of these major races, and certainly the governor's race has been one that we've had a lot of focus on. Um, the fact that uh, the fact that we had the Republican state superintendent switch parties to a Democrat and then announce she's running for governor uh, uh, it was kind of the first volley uh, last year. And we've seen we've just seen a lot of uh, there's still a lot of speculation on who the field will finally be. I mean, Joy Hoffmeister is not uh, is not going to be the nominee without a primary. Uh, it, just the same as uh, Governor Stitt is not going to be the nominee without a primary. And so there, there, are, there are a lot of things still to, um, to see how they kind of unfold. And we still have um, uh, several weeks before the April 13th through 15th filing when all of this will finally be known once and for all. And the political stage will really be set both for the primary and, the, and uh, seeing what it could look like uh, into the general election. So it'll be fascinating, but I, I think in terms of millions of dollars being spent, we have seen for multiple elections cycles in the past that we have had independent expenditure committees, political action committees, and, and others uh, weigh into to races uh, to uh, either draw contrast, drive a point on something that they are very uh, unhappy about or want to bring more public awareness to. So this is just part of uh, this is part of the kind of the overall mix. And I think uh, I think that the fact that that this group, again, took the Super Bowl as kind of their venue to really roll it out in a in a in a bigger way uh, points to the fact that they probably intend to be, you know, a very high profile group out there trying to uh, uh, trying to really, um, really engage in what they want the debate to be in the governor's race, per se. Oklahoma County Jail's administrator has come under fire for comments caught on tape after a phone conversation with reporters. According to non-doc, Greg Williams and spokesperson Mark Opgrand were heard saying the COVID-19 pandemic had been wonderful and a friend for the jail in bringing in money for the facility. Neva, could this become an issue for the officials? Well, I mean, I think it's already an issue and already a conversation. And we have um, uh, we have the Democrat uh, commissioner, county commissioner uh, Bloomer, who has said that she is trying to have a conversation with uh, uh, with Jim Couch about this specifically. Um, and I, I think what we have is is a situation where you have the jail administrator and the communications director making comments that uh, clearly uh, have inflamed a lot of people. It's going to require some resolution. I mean, and I think the fact that whatever, uh, however 
uh, it was said. It certainly was said in a very poor way. And I think uh, when you talk about uh, uh, COVID as being something that is, uh, I think it, the term was used, a built-in excuse so that the, the folks could keep people out. In other words, because of that, they didn't have to have tours, didn't have visits to the jail. I mean, they could be in a more lockdown setting from the, you know, the public being able to come in and out as they normally routinely would. Um, and, and the fact that, uh, that there's no question. I mean, as a result of COVID, there have been millions and millions of dollars that have been infused into uh, uh, county, local governments, uh, as well as state. And when you look at uh, the fact that they have been able to use some of that money for much needed upgrades, and I don't think anyone would dispute that they needed uh, improving the uh, the HVAC infrastructure, the plumbing. I mean, you could the list is endless of the needs of that particular structure, but but, um, but I think the the fact that this recording of this conversation has come to light, it's going to require it's going to require something to satisfy it. Um, I think both for elected officials and the public in order to put it behind everyone. Ryan, you know I've 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 heard folks say you know you know if it weren't for COVID you know they wouldn't have learned how to bake bread or, or knit or they they got back into some hobby. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, people trying to find a, a silver lining to this pandemic uh, is, is something that we've probably all done. Um, but in this context, these comments are just really reprehensible and uh, indefensible, um, especially coming from administrators of a, a jail system uh, that I feel like it's just about every other day we see another death coming out of that jail. Uh, or more reports of uh, inhumane conditions uh, within that jail. Um, you know, the you know, that's to me just a, a real uh, dereliction of your duty. Your, your job uh, as the as the jail administrator there is to protect uh, the, the the detainees. Most of these folks are there, and we've got to remember that. Uh, you know, I think it's ninety percent plus of the people sitting in that Oklahoma County jail have not been convicted of anything. They're just like you or me. They've been arrested. They're waiting there pre-trial for a determination on their their guilt or innocence. And the idea that any of us, uh, prior to a court saying that you're guilty or not guilty, uh, would have to sit and await our day of uh, of reckoning in front of a judge or a jury in a place where um, you could walk in on, on something that you know, may put you in prison for two to five years. Uh, but the moment you walk in that jail, you have to wonder if you're ever going to walk out alive. And that's that's not hyperbole. That's just something that, that really exists within the Oklahoma jail system. And so for two folks to that that are that are trusted with that to have this kind of conversation, I you know, I get it. I, I have I've worked in, in jobs where you deal with awful, terrible things all the time. And, and sometimes Humor, even dark humor, is, is a way to, to get through that. Uh, but this crosses even that line. Uh, and, and I think that there needs to be some accountability here. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that Commissioner Bloomer is, is leading the charge and trying to make that happen.
Well, and I think it's interesting that, you know, the jail trust chair, Jim Couch, I mean, he has he had stated publicly that the trust was disappointed, the word he used. But um, but that certainly is uh, not enough to end this conversation. I think the fact that at the uh, the last uh, county commissioners meeting, you had a number of uh, folks during public comment, you know, raise this issue. They were actually going so far as in some cases uh, wanting to demand the resignation or termination of these two individuals. I think not getting ahead of it, I think not addressing it in a timely manner uh, has just uh, has compounded uh, the issue. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, we've all made statements uh, that uh, we certainly wouldn't want to be uh, captured on the front page of a uh, of a newspaper or a recording, you know, uh, made public. I mean, that 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 would be misconstrued. Uh, but something said between individuals that uh, uh, the individuals understood what each other were saying, but uh, not intended to be mean spirited or anything else. So uh, we'll just have to see how this uh, how this finally unfolds. But it needs to be done quickly, or it's just going to continue to be one of these issues that fester. And and that's the last thing they need at the Oklahoma County Jail. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.